my name is Robert Higgins. And I'm Kay Tuxford. And this is episode 79 of Screenwriting from the Trenches, a podcast about the craft and expression of screenwriting in all its forms from the prospect of our writers just like you. You had way too much fun with that one all right. uh, t- today, Rob. Okay. <laughs> this week, we're talking writing for the non-union market. And to help with that, we have an interview with Heather Taylor, a writer-director whose film Lethal Love is currently available on Netflix. But first, as always, we must discuss what is screenwriting Twitter, a Twitter about this week. Take it away, Zach. It's just another day in screenwriting drama, screenwriting drama, screenwriting drama. It's just another day in screenwriting drama. It's another day in screenwriting drama. And we're back. Heather, welcome to the show. And feel free to chime in on the Twitter things of the week as we All sort right. of go through them. Let's start with the, with the, <laughs> this is non-screenwriting related, but it was on everybody's mind this week. Of course, the Jonathan Majors scandals, uh, along with Gwyneth Paltrow's legal <laughs> troubles. She we'll just just these under all legal troubles. Uh, there was a lot of legal troubles this week. Um, and, uh, this was, this was odd. These two were odd in that they were like, here's a person in terms of Gwyneth Paltrow, who's, who's always, who's been like an internet villain, but then Mm -hmm. turned out to be innocent. And then in the opposite, you had Jonathan Majors, who was an internet darling and then seemed kind of a Lothario. You know what I mean? It was just, uh, this opposite week on Twitter and Mm -hmm. in real life. And so it was just, oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it, it kind of turned our worlds upside down, right? That we didn't yeah. know we were going to cheer on Gwyneth Paltrow <laughs> and realize Jonathan Majors is like everybody's like abusive ex, right? Yeah. Yeah. That was, yeah. It's always like, well, it's always disappointing when you see people's, I think, I say true colors or other side of them that you didn't expect. And the mask yeah. slipping. Yeah. 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 But I think Gwyneth Paltrow really lived up to the like evil villain, even in her looks during the the trial. So I think she just, no. just really went for that. The internet was very obsessed <laughs> with the cross-examination of the prosecution, you know, that like her like, you know, as the prosecution's lawyer was just like seemed to be Gwyneth Paltrow's biggest fan. Like she was fangirling out, yes. like visibly fangirling. During the thing, that woman and Gwyneth Paltrow may end up BFFs. Like, it was so funny <gasps> to, like, oh. watch the two of them, like, the exchange. She's just like, are you an expert on this? And, she, and like, Gwyneth Paltrow would be like, no. And she's like, me neither. Me neither. Totally. totally. <laughs> and I was, like, watching this. I was like, is this real life? Seriously, are you, this feels like it was scripted. I'm like, where is the writer of Legally Blonde? Is, are they in the backgrounds? Are they in the court galley? Seriously. <laughs> Right, hanging know. out with Aaron Sorkin. Right. Yeah. What the fuck? It was like, <laughs> it was like watching this. Was like, this can't be a real. It is. It is apparently yes. a real trial. It was just hilarious. Yes. Yeah. Yes. But I feel and, like I. Yeah, I feel like that should be a show. That is yeah. a show. Like they become BFFs, 1, and then <laughs> it's like my lawyer BFF. Yeah. One thousand percent. And every just, time she runs into some like legal trouble with Goop or something, she's like, "Yes, yeah, bestie, help me." That yeah. that would be reality TV that I would watch, just because like watching that that those those clips were so compelling. Like this woman was clearly just a giant fan. She's like, "I can't believe that I have to cross examine fucking Gwyneth Paltrow tomorrow. That is ridiculous." She's like, just like, yeah, like pinch me. Oh my god. Like, yep, love it. And then, you know, this is one we almost talked about last week on Twitter, and you didn't, yeah, you didn't get I enough didn't, time on. But yeah, Rob, this is this is I, you're in love with Swarm. Yeah. yeah, I'm. Well, me and the internet, everybody's yes. in love with Swarm, and I wanted to bring this up because I wanted to see Heather what you think mm-hmm. because we have three writers. I think that we are witnessing the. It's not the birth of a new genre, but the cementing of a new genre. I'm calling it Mar. I'm calling it multiverse alternate reality, mm-hmm. where you have a show that is that is presenting itself as if it is a show from another universe. 
Now, obviously, you if you've watched Rick and Morty, they've done interdimensional cable. So, of mm -hmm. course, this whole thing always starts with Dan Harmon because it would only come out of something like his brain. But then you have things like Atlanta. They had uh, they did an episode on their on their show. Uh, and of course, Swarm is produced. And the first episode is directed by Donald Glover. Mm -hmm. But they had that episode, The Goof, that sat by the door. And you have what's clearly something that is coming from some alternate reality where they are allowing you to watch this thing that is so close to our own reality, but the differences make it make make you realize that you are watching this. You are watching something that is coming from another reality that is parallel mm -hmm. to our own. And then, of course, there's the OA, which not right. to spoil anything, where the end of, well... The end basically it sounds, ends like that. That's where how it ends. Where you're like, like this is, huh? Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, like <laughs> you're not gonna get that. That's not gonna make any sense to you unless you know the show. It's still yes. not gonna make any sense to you. I could spoil the whole thing and it wouldn't make any difference. That's how weird that show is. But like mm -hmm. you're looking at that and you're just like, okay, oh wow, oh alternate, oh wow, that all oh, that just breaks my brain. Like it makes everything everywhere all at once look like. Blue's Clues. It just, <laughs> it's, it's complicated as hell. But then there was, there's an episode of, of, of Swarm, not to spoil anything on this show, but there's an episode like the pre-ultimate, the penultimate episode of the show where they go through the timeline of the events of the show. And they mm -hmm. basically, it puts everything into context and to something where you're like, I'm watching a, a show from another reality. Mm. And it's and to me, I was I was saying this to Kay. This is the Goldfinger of alternate reality content. Like when people think James Bond, they think about <laughs> Goldfinger. They think about you know that's the first movie where we get the 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 sequence of like the girls that turn into bullets that turn into things and like there's that. There's you mean the, the opening credit sequence? The opening credit sequence, yes. Like the James Bond okay. movies are famous for their opening credit sequence that yes. started in Goldfinger. Then you have this the song, the like the nobody's singing from Russia with love, but everybody knows Shirley Bassey's Goldfinger. It's a thing. Like all of the James Bond tropes started with Goldfinger. That's cementing. Like number one is Gold Dr. No is setting up James Bond as a potential franchise. From Russia with Love is the cementing of a franchise. And then Goldfinger is what makes it iconic. You have the the villain with a weird quirk that also has a henchman with an even weirder quirk. Um, <laughs> <laughs> like all of that's Goldfinger. And now when the same thing with Swarm, where you have this thing now where you are allowed to basically set up in even in the the this is this is not a uh, the thing says like the every episode starts with. This is not a, uh, this is a true story. All like, all of the coincidences between living individuals is absolutely intended, like something like that. And mm, so yeah. it literally goes through that. But then at the, it tells you that this is a true story and you get the parallels of where it's coming from. But then at the end, when that, that episode six, then they flip that on you. And you're just like, oh, oh, that, oh, that broke my brain. Oh my God. And to be fair, it is a wild show and otherwise in content, stuff like that. But the thing to me is like, this is this is literally a new genre of TV. I'm excited to see what's going to come out of it. But mm. it's multiverse, alternate reality. I think it's just like more, it's just like a more subtle, like you have something like Man, Man of the High Castle and you're like, that's a definite alternate reality. You can look at that and say, yes, 100%. Germany did not win World War II. Right, and then right. The world changed, but this is like so close to reality that it's hard to tell, which is what's cool about it. It's not like right. here's the what if from so far in the past that it changes so many things. It's more like, well, what if it's just like a little to the side? Or like yeah. a, a world like Schitt's Creek, for instance, which you'd say is not an alternate world, but it 100% is because it's such an accepting place in a small town that's accepting in a way that we right. don't see really in reality. So I would say that they like took out some of the things that they thought they didn't want to have that as part of their reality of the show. They just wanted to show like, what is love? Right. right. And what can love right. be without right. it being always like having all these other things weighing on it. But yeah. I would say that's an alternate world too. 
because that's are, not real. There are certainly like things that could fall under it. You know, if you sort of stretch the definitions, I think my thing is that in terms of this is where it almost acknowledges it in the, in the conception of it, it acknowledges that you're watching a television show, like the meta mm, aspect yeah, yeah. of mm. it has to acknowledge the fact that you are watching like, like in Rick and Morty where they're doing alternative reality cable. Like you are watching a show mm. from another world. Um, mm -hmm. And so that's sort of, like I said, it's in itself, it's kind of niche, but it keeps popping back up in odd mm. places. And to the point where you're just like, in terms of the OA, where it hits you at the end and you're just like, oh, uh, there are a couple of shows that almost attempted the ending of um, Terminator, the Sarah Connor Chronicles is almost like that, where it takes mm. something and it just like the, the lore that you knew about like what we've always assumed about John Connor and all of these things. And then it just like, ah, like we hit you with that. And then the show ends. That's the other thing. These shows always end or get canceled. <laughs> and then you're just stuck with these questions. It's yeah, almost right. you're like, no, oh, we're never going to get an answer to that. Son of a bitch. Ah, drives me crazy. Okay. So obviously, I you your love. I let you have your love poems. Yeah, it's one of my favorite genre. But, yes, but we have one more topic on Twitter to cover, and I think Heather would be happy to weigh in on this one. Mm. This is oh, something we, we all kind of experienced yesterday, which is Donald Trump got indicted or mm. indicated, as he typed. <laughs> oh God, I spelled it wrong. Wait, did I spell? No, it right? no, you spelled it right. He yeah. sent out a text saying he'd been indicated oh, okay. instead of indicted. So, so yeah. Did you know that 99.5% of people who are indicted of a federal crime are found guilty? Wow. I did not, but I love that statistic. Yeah. I was doing some research. I was looking into it last night because I was like, what does this actually mean? And then they said something like 90% of people um, will take a guilty plea. But I don't think that's going to happen with this particular gentleman. No. I don't think he's going to be doing that. Mm -mm. well mm -mm. i don't know this whole thing because i don't know it i don't depending on who you who you're following and this not even talking about like you know fox news versus like cnn just depending on what n sort of new slant that you're getting you know this is either like this is going to be the end of trump or this is going to this means nothing not necessarily in terms of trump but like this doesn't mean anything because you know the the premise by which, and that's the thing, nobody knows yet because the indictment is sealed. But the, yeah. the, the premise by which they think that he's been indicted it has a narrow definition of law. If you listen to some of some some pundits explain it, but I but it's about like it's. I think they've taken it to financial to a level that it's not about intent. It's about actual like it came from finance funds you cannot use finance funds for other purposes right, like they right. i think what they're doing and what took so long is to be like we need to set an ironclad case that is just mm -hmm. like they've got al capone on tax evasion right, right, right this right. is like based in things that are very like factual versus like intent because intent is hard to prove right 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 and like, i think all they all they really need right if i remember i'm gonna sound like an idiot maybe if i, I got this wrong but he just needs to be charged and be a convicted felon for him not to be able to run for president right no i don't think that i don't think that there's any you don't have to they don't have any no? um safeguards okay, against like like being a, there's um, nothing like no. there's nothing barring but it's hard to be in prison i mean it's hard to go to you know <laughs> to be a president of the united states if you're in prison it's hard to do that so um, you know Things are like yeah, it's thirty four counts, so that's pretty substantial. Yeah. So um, I'm assuming some of those. I don't know what the count. Like that's the thing is that none of us know what the counts are. So I assume some of that may be jail time, but a lot of it may be financial. I don't know. Like for me, I'm just like there are so many things that you'd rather see Trump indicted for rather than this. This seems like this almost. I mean, I don't know. Obviously, using campaign money to pay for stuff hush money so she won't say anything about the fact that you had sex with her oh i mean that's how you get people right again i always think like that's so capone. embarrassing it's yeah so embarrassing. but yeah that's why i think like go back to capone like he did a lot of really bad stuff but they couldn't prove it right. so what what could they prove tax evasion so that's why he went to jail yeah and it... he stayed in jail for the rest of his life i believe Yes, if I'm not mistaken, but you know, it's just 
you know, when you think of all the the things that Trump has done, and of course, you know, the obvious, the thing that looms largest is, of course, January 6th. But then, you know, the stuff that he did after the election, where, you know, he was trying to literally defraud the election process. Oh, yeah. All of it's horrible, but it's just that it's about proof, right? That's the hard Mm -hmm. part is like, you know, can it be proved? Do you have the right things in place? Can you find like the letter that, but he's been was shredding things, literally like flushing papers down the toilet. Like how you can't, like the evidence has been buried. So like, cause they know what they're doing. Yeah. I, it, yeah. Like I, uh, it's definitely important and it's not how you do it, but it, it's, it, <laughs> despite how it's, it's historic, it is, it feels petty, but it is what it is. And I still hope they get him uh, regardless because yeah. the dude, like, you know, some consequences would be nice, please. Jesus Christ. <laughs> the guy's got, like, people, people used to say that Bill Clinton was a Teflon president, but I think Donald Trump uh, eclipses him by a mile. You know what I mean? Like, nothing sticks. And so hopefully this is just like the end, like that non-stick pan is no longer <laughs> as non-stick nice. as it once was. Please, God. Like, Jesus. Do something. Well, always be hopeful because I think it's like hard sometimes when we look at the system we're in and how much, how often like money gets you out of things. Mm-hmm. And it'd be nice if you could see that money doesn't always get you out of things and that there are consequences because it doesn't seem to be a lot of consequences in a lot of places. So yeah, um, it would be good to see that because there, are, yeah, it's hopeful. I'm hopeful that it actually does the judiciary system actually does what it's supposed to do. Right. Agreed. Please. And 34 counts sound like maybe something's going to stick, right? Maybe. That's my hope. It's a quantity thing, I'm hoping. I mean, that's the other thing that I really feel like, you know, if if you're throwing your hat out there, even on something like that, even on those charges, that is a, that's a big swing. And you don't usually Mm -hmm. go for something like that. You don't call it at the plate unless you know that you're going to hit that thing. Like, yeah. With these types of charges too, this indictment, it has to, it already went through a grand jury mm-hmm. yeah. to indict. So it, it had to go and they had to show that they were taking on the burden of proof, argument. right? Yeah. Right. The government takes on the burden of proof. And so they're like, here it is. And then a grand jury said, yes, you have enough proof for these 34 counts. You can now indict him. He gets arrested. And then supposedly within 70 days, there needs to be a trial unless both parties agree for an extension. Yeah. And that, the other thing yeah. is, is, like, I thought this was, <sighs> DeSantis is saying that he is not going to extradite Trump to to the to the government. That's not um, a choice. Yeah. No, he's saying he won't extradite him. And I'm just like, I don't think that's how the law works. No. Um, but to mm-hmm. me, it was just, it, why wouldn't you want to be like, you know, Republicans are always about law and order until one of them gets picked up. You right. Know? <laughs> Like, they're like, well, not me. That's yeah. just to go after everyone I'm yeah. oppressing. Yes. The Democrats are the opposite. They're like, no, take them. We don't want them. You know what I mean? They immediately <laughs> drop their own. They oh, immediately yeah. drop you. Like, that's, that's the best part on Twitter. People are like, well, if Biden was getting arrested right now, would you guys be okay? And we're like, yes. yeah, he's a criminal. Like, yeah, if he's done it, drop him. Take immediately. him. Like, yeah. we got other people, but the Republicans are like, how dare they? You know, I, I never forget. I will never forget, like, that one Republican senator. I wish I had the clip to, like, to cue it up, where he just goes, it's acting like you can't even, you can't even lie to the FBI anymore. And I'm just like, <laughs> oh, oh, my God. Oh, my God. Oh, where's this book yeah. home that you can't lie to the FBI? Can't anymore. lie to the FBI anymore. Damn it. All those plans I had. Yeah. <laughs> Gosh darn it. What okay. is this country coming to? You can't lie to a, 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 a law right. enforcement body anymore? What is happening in this country? We used to just, be great. Yeah, and you can't just take away every single person's right without oh, complaining. The yeah, worst. it's so, so hard. There was, the you know, in all the, the book banning of, of late, what is it, in Tennessee or Texas as a teeny, they are banning anything with, you know, illicit content not appropriate for certain ages. And a parent has made a really great argument to ban the Bible, which I was yes. like, oh, and they're like, you know, they're like, oh, we didn't want it to do that. Right. But, uh-huh. but uh, yeah, uh-huh. like, uh-huh. that's how it works. Well, they're like, it has bestiality. It yeah. has like, like it has a lot yeah. like, yeah. The slavery, uh, yeah. <laughs> selling of, you know, oh, well, okay. Anyway. Incest, yeah. yeah. It's, it's just a, a whole bad thing. It's not cool, you know. Anyway. 
So let's move on to our topic of the week, which is writing for the non-union market through the lens of our guest, the wonderful Heather, who's been lovely so far. So our first question Ooh. is for you, Heather. Yes. How did you, in fact, get into this business of show? It was a very long journey, but if I'll shorten it, it was, I started in the theater mm -hmm. and I was an actor because I grew up kind of like I was a poor kid, grew up in Saskatchewan, or actually grew up in Northern Saskatchewan and then lived in Edmonton, Alberta, where I was born. We returned there and I was like, I want to tell stories. And I'm like, I guess if you tell stories, you have to be an actor, right? So I was like, I'll <laughs> go and act because, and then in school, we we're doing like collective creation and like, I got to be really political and like really like angsty and it was awesome. And I was like, this is how I tell stories. And then I went to acting school and I was like, oh no, that's not <laughs> to tell stories. This is a horrible choice that I made. Yeah. Why are they trying to beat the love of this out of me? But I did like start in, I started in theater and then, uh, so, you know, I, I'd been in that that kind of, I went to school in Vancouver in a conservatory program, and I realized this is not for me. Um, my last day in acting school, I was in my pajamas, basically, because that's what you do when you go to acting school. You just live in your pajamas, and I'm doing, like, warm-ups on the floor, and, and I was like, what am I doing? This is, like, I'm unhappy, and I'm lying on the floor in a cold basement, moving my pajamas. arms around in my pajamas, what am I doing? And I did my last ever like thing in that school was I did a mask, like I was doing mask and mime class. And so I was like in a mask pretending to be an old man reading a newspaper. And then I was, got my notes. And then I went upstairs to the artistic director and I said, uh, peace out. I'm out. This is horrible. I'm leaving. And I was in the middle of a semester. I was like, I hadn't, didn't have a degree. I was just like, I don't know what to do, but I'm leaving this program. So then I had the opportunity to take some classes and I took a class on poetry, a class on screenwriting, mm -hmm. and then a class on Excel worksheets. I don't know, I had to do a, really random. I had three credits I had to get. And so something about like Excel and stuff and then poetry and screenwriting. To be fair, and... that is a useful skill. <laughs> I know. Um, yeah. I use Excel scripts all the time, so it's great. <laughs> but I think, like, for me, that was my opportunity to. I'd already started to dabble in writing for theater, and then I did this course and wrote, a, wrote my first screenplay while I was working a job in a call center. And I felt like I'd walked into the Matrix and worked at this call center, and I wrote about, like, where I came from, um, living in northern Saskatchewan. Like, what if I never got to leave? And then that was kind of my first time I wrote something. And even then, I didn't realize that it was a job. I always thought just lots of people wrote. And so right. I was just writing, too. Like, I just joined the great masses of everyone who writes. And then I only took me a little longer to be like, oh, no, wait. Not everyone writes and people get paid. And right. so I had the opportunity to move to England. So I moved to England and I ran a theater company. And I was just trying to make stuff as well. So I was doing short films and, and everything I could. I just said yes to every opportunity. And then my first feature film got made called The Last Tech War. And I was brought on as a writer for hire, which I've done. Most of my feature work has been as a writer for hire. And they brought me on um, to write this story about a lone gunman that goes to a town to have revenge on this man over his, like what happened to his mother. And it was really someone else. And, but at the core of the story is really about a man looking for his father. And as a child abandoned by my father, I thought that's something I know lots about. And I can write that. But it was a film set in Bangladesh that was really interesting. I worked with a Bengali director and um, who'd come up with the idea. And then I brought my spin to it. And it's its first ever Bengali Western. And they thought, because I'm from Edmonton, Alberta, which is the uh, Texas of Canada. They thought that I knew. Oh, yes. They're like, you know about Westerns? I said, I do know about Westerns. And then I went home and watched all the Westerns I could find. Yes, yes. Because <laughs> I did not know anything about Westerns. <laughs> okay, so, well, since we are also our topic is about the non-union mm -hmm. market, do you want to ask the next question, Rob? Yeah, okay. So you said most of your career has been non-union uh, or for work for hire. Work um, for hire. Not, not, not necessarily non-union, but work for hire, yes. Well, I was wondering, do you think that the non-union market rivals the union jobs? Because aren't you a member of the Canadian Union? Like, Yes, I am now. But I think it really depends on what you want to make. But I definitely know in the kind of movie of the week, that market that's, you know, lifetime, 
um, Hallmark, a lot of the volume, especially in Canada, but I think in the US too, because I know writers who do this, a lot of the volume is not union because there's less, you don't have to pay them as much. There's a, right. you know, not necessarily give residuals sometimes. Like sometimes it's like one and done. You just come in, like my contract was an outline, two drafts, and a polish if they want, but I was only guaranteed an outline and a draft. And okay. so it protects them. It gives an opportunity to writers who are non-union. But if you can get enough of them, if they like you, you can continue to write those write films in that kind of vein forever. Right. And so I, I know people who are like, well, I have a like I get I get paid well enough. Like usually they start you at a low rate when you were the first time they worked with you, and then can move up from there. It's not to say that companies like like obviously. Hallmark and Lifetime and probably Netflix and what have whatever will also have work with union have union writer jobs. Right. But a lot of those companies have subsidiary companies that are non-union subsidiaries. So even though I was working with, for instance, Mar Vista was who I worked with in the Shema, who are great, but I worked I by contract was with their subsidiary. Yeah. Uh, okay. That was a non-union. So if I was union, I'd work for them directly, contractually, even though I would work with them regardless. So it's a yeah, workaround. And, yeah, and I was gonna say, and then also like Mar Vista acquired my film last a uh, couple of years ago, and we were a non-union indie project. And so once the film was done, they also just you know they just gave us a distribution deal, and it didn't yeah. matter that we weren't union, you know. So yeah. it just depends on like where the idea starts. Right, yes. right, right, right. See, and I've I've only done non-union work, you know, and it seems to be quite a like a big market of like independent producers, especially folks coming out of the tech world that have that are independently wealthy and want to finance their own films. And then they're all yeah. like they start these companies that become subsidiaries under companies like Mar Vista and they fund these films. And it happens more than you think. That was John Wick. Derek Kolstad, who was the writer of John Wick, wrote for years under non-union contracts for these low-budget, straight-to-video action market, you know, until he finally hit big with John Wick. And the only reason that it went to Lionsgate and became a studio franchise is because Keanu Reeves. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but, like, it happens more often than you think, where, like, you know, you get these films that start mm -hmm. outside of the, you know, and even our former guests, uh, Nathan Graham Davis, his film is just sold. And it was a non-union contract. Yeah. And what's nice about sometimes non-union? Oh, is that you know everybody's coming in. You're working often as on indie rates, and you know if you're working for a movie of the week, oftentimes the shoot days are like we're going to do like 15, 20 pages a day sometimes, and and then they you make it quick. They you know they go through post quick, and the product comes out pretty quick. So you know for for a lot of folks, you know it's a way to like you know, I'm making something, I'm getting up every day. You can take right. like seven years to ferry a movie through, but you know, something, someplace like Mar Vista, they owe so many movies a year they got to make. And yes. so, yeah, it's, it's, it's a, you know, it's a really routine process for them. Yeah. Yes. I got to think, um, not to cut you off Heather, but like, no, no. there's, there's like, I read a statistic that over 200 Christmas movies get made every single year. And most of those jobs I'm guessing are non-union jobs. So like that, this is a mark. This is an absolute market yes. of places where like, like, like Kay said, like we've got numbers, we've got a hit, we have a market we have to satisfy and these jobs are going out and they're, like you said, Heather, they're getting pe folks uh, their foot in the door. Yeah. And it gives you an opportunity. Like you get an opportunity to write, work with people who are, they, it's, it's so interesting because I think like <laughs> I've worked with indie directors, indie producers, and I've worked with the folks at Nishim and Mar Vista, and their notes were very clear. They know exactly what they want. I felt like it was like, here's the top level notes, here's the detailed notes, here's what we're thinking. And I felt like it was the smoothest process that I've ever had writing because it was so, it was so like, they just knew exactly what they needed to make to sell because what a lot of times they're doing and why they're doing as non-union projects is because they are making it like they're investing their own money in writing and make producing it. And then they try to sell it. So mm -hmm. like my, my film, they made it also during the height of COVID. So writing to try to make sure that it was COVID safe, like rethinking a concept that was also like, like 
supposed to be like sexy and the kissing and the all the people and they're like could you reduce kissing to one scene and i'm like damn it <laughs> like oh to one location so you do it at the end and you realize how much like so there's all these like things that they're doing and they're creating these films and then they're selling them so they don't want to take a risk they're, they're not, in some cases though like unless they can get a distributor on board like get a, a hallmark like sell to hallmark first hallmark puts the investment in that's mm -hmm. a different story and that's often when they're working with union writers is that they can get investment from the companies. A lot of times it's these smaller producers that are making content and then selling it on. So they're like, we're going to try to sell it to Netflix. And if we can't sell it to Netflix, maybe we'll try to sell it to Lifetime or to, there's a company on Canada that's called E or there's the W Network or there's like all these other little networks that want this content. And they kind of try to figure out just like any kind of producer, like where can we sell it? But their model is not to get the funding to sell the idea and they are selling a final product right um which is why it benefits them to make have the writing non-union because then they can use like names of actors on the other side or they produce it in canada because it's cheaper we produce we make a lot of this type of a, a lot canada. of tax incentives uh in canada yes. yeah. yeah yeah so you have like two types of tax incentives i'll just i'll tell you guys this because it's useful because this is what people do so you have a something called six out of ten for provincial funding for production. And so what they'll do is you have to have either a writer or a director who's Canadian. You have to have one of the leads needs to be Canadian. And then like six out of the 10 major roles have to be fulfilled by a Canadian. So often they do that on the production side and then they get tax incentives. If you want something to get federal funding like Canadian media funds, so CMF funding, you need to have eight out of 10. So a lot of television shows that are Canadian need to have that much um, so that, that many people involved, but to get the, the specific funding. And I think there's another pot of funding you can get as, get as well, but there's all these different things in place. So it means that producers are thinking about who are they actually hiring and why, and how can they find new ways to get, to get money, to make sure we can make something at these lower costs, because we know that budgets are shrinking, but the right. need for content is still there. Right. So if you're listening and you're a Canadian writer, just know you can be one of those out of 10, right? Yeah. Well, exactly. one of the- one That of almost the, sounds like the premise of a television show. I've had uh, meetings with production companies and they're like, oh, we love your writing. Are you Canadian? And you can just see the money in their eye. They're like, would you be, are you? And I'm like, no. And then the light goes- On my mother's side. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. 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 So, so it's, it's, it's a sweet deal if you can hook up with some Canadians in the industry. Yeah. That's a- but I think, I think too, there's like some restrictions that happen, like with even indie, like I remember working with this wonderful director as we were working on a project together and I was like, could you make it a WGA contract? Mm -hmm. And I talked, mm. this is, this is 2017. Things have shifted a bit, not a lot. And they will maybe shift more after May. But at the time I reached out to the WGA and said, what can we do? We are very low budget. And they're like, well, you can do it as like a digital only type like product so it will never have a theatrical release and if that is the case you can negotiate your fee but at the time the regulation the thing said but if it change if it changes into a theatrical release and you have over a certain amount of budget then you have to retroactively pay the full fee and so my directors were like director producers are like we just don't want to take that risk because right. yes we can negotiate your fee and then say whatever for back end and have this negotiation but it will be triggered by x we also have to make sure we put into pension and other things there may be different types of residuals that is out of negotiation but if you are actually working on like low budget projects like under 1.2 million you can there is negotiation you can do like deferred payment under 500k it's like um i think it's like you can do 50 percent of your payment but you don't get like there's no deferment just you pay you get paid 50 percent if you if that's what you can go as low as and then if it's under 300k i think it's 25 percent of the fee wow. and so there are ways but then you are working this is ultra low budget stuff yeah well i think a lot of new writers it's a really great place to start out as low budget so i think you're offering a lot of stepping stones for our listeners so i really appreciate that yeah um because you know i think low budget we're constantly making content and there's always is a willingness to work with like new writers and new folk that you know want to learn and you know cut their teeth yeah. on it so it's a really great entry level platform for a lot of folks 
Yeah, I, I do wish. Oh, sorry. I like, can I, I just I do wish, though, that there's a way we could find out a way to get all of these things under the protection of something like the WGA. Yeah. So that we are protected because you're not protected. Right. And so to be able to have the backing of like, this is what minimums are. This is what because like, you know, when you get you, you the work is the same. It's not like the work is different or less. It's right. exactly the same. And you're getting paid 10K versus 100k is a huge difference or 50k or whatever it is like right the difference is 70s now i think we're 70k maybe is bare i don't even know anymore Mm. (laughs) yeah the 70k is 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 bare is bare minimum for something that's written on spec and but the other thing is is that and some of the 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 things at least in america will will tell you that they'll abide by wga minimums and even wga rules but then they try to they do things like they'll hire you for work for hire or they'll make it in your contract that says it has to be done under a work for hire, which means mm-hmm. that according to WGA rules, which means that they can hire you the for almost like ten to fifteen thousand dollars less. Like there's there's less money that they can pay you, and so mm-hmm. they try to whittle chip at it. They'll be like, yeah, we'll pay you WGA minimums without being a WGA contract, but then they, they use their contract and like whittle at you down to the thing. They're always so going to find the lowest possible deal. Right. So yeah. that out yeah. of like the $70,000 that you should have made, you only end up making like 40 or 50. And then, you know, they're just like, well, you got your foot in the door. Aren't you happy? And the director mm-hmm. is usually like, please take the deal because, you know, we want to, we want the movie to go forward. You know what I mean? Like, and you're mm-hmm. the person who it's funny because as, as as much as people were always like, you know, the writer has no power, but that's the moment where you are your, your most powerful, where you can be like, I don't like this, you know, and it's going to shut it down. Sealed, yeah. Right. And shut it down. Well, um, but, it, but if it's a writer for hire deal, like if they, or if it's not an idea that generates from you and they're yes. kind of right, right. you can't, that's, you don't have any power. Yeah, exactly. Because no. you just say, I'm not like, oh no, I don't want to go for that amount. They're like, okay. We'll find somebody but, else. Bye. We'll go find like, somebody else. Yeah. Like there was an ac- accidentally got sent someone's contract that they hadn't accepted the changes so they'd crossed out the person's name and my name was in it and they hadn't accepted the changes so i saw the other person's name and the name of the film and the amount was exactly the same so i'm like it's it it's just they just continue to like it's the same thing the same thing so like right there's like no wiggle room a lot of the time in these things it's just yeah. is what it is and it is ridiculously low but in some cases you're like well this is the opportunity right so a lot of times people We'll say, well, I'll take the opportunity or there's nothing. What else is paying me right now? And I think a lot of people are right. struggling with the with the industry currently being so locked up and so many changes happening and so many jobs being let go. And like people are scared. They're like, well, I'll just take anything. Exactly. So how did Lethal Love get to Netflix? Before it was, I mean, it's it had another title originally. Before <laughs> yes, it it <laughs> Don't look at, so it's called Family Seductions. Don't look it up on the internet. You'll uh. just get, you'll just get porn. It's just porn. It's just family <laughs> incest porn. So that is not what the film is about. But I'm just saying, FYI, I would tell people I'm working on this film called this, but don't look it up. Right. Because I did one I, day, and I was like, woo. <laughs> not safe for work. So it's interesting, like that project. Do you want me to tell you, like, kind of how I got involved in it? I'll tell yeah. you the process of how windy, yeah. windy roads. Right. I think this is our business is windy roads and. I got accepted to go to the Banff World Media Festival, which is in Banff in Alberta. And it's a big like market and, you know, so forth. And so I got part of this, um, I was part of a writer's apprentice program. And part of it is you go to Banff and then you go to, you get two weeks in a writer's room. So it was a TV thing. So because of who I am and who I believe everyone should do this, I, I was like, okay, I have access to people and I'm going to email every person in this list that I think I could work with in some capacity. I even messaged Jeffrey Katzenberg. He did huh. not return my email. What? It's only fine. Like, I was like, what just shoot, shoot my shot, right? Like, just, I'm just going to do it, right? Like, why not? But I had lots of great meetings. And one of them was an executive from the company that I ended up doing the project with, with, with doing Lethal Love with. And I got along with her really well. We were talking actually about a television series that I ended up you know, pitching it to her later and she really liked it as well. And so I just kind of like had that relationship and I built all these people that I met who I continued to contact on a regular basis. And she had posted something in a group in Canada called Inc. Canada. So if you're a Canadian and you want to join, kind of be in a group 
on Facebook with people who are Canadian writers. That's the place they all are at. It's called Inc. Canada. And she posted looking for writers for thriller, for thrillers, like send me a sample of a horror or thriller. So I had a horror film, the one that I tried to do a WGA contract with and we couldn't because of blah, 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 what I talked about earlier. And I sent it to her and she's like, I love this. I'll send it to the team in the States. They're like, this isn't quite the right film for us. We wouldn't make this, but we'll put you on our like roster of potential writers. And that was in November. And the following February, I got an email saying, here's a two page description of an idea. Do you think that you could write this? And it had, it was like, set in a bakery so it was food and it was music and I was a musician and it was like complicated family relationship all things that I write about so I was like yeah like let's do it so I was really lucky because I got a job and then the pandemic happened so to me I felt really grateful because there was not a lot of work happening and so I got that um, we filmed it I got the offer in February of 2020 it got wow filmed in October of 2020. Wow. I handed in my final script the end of August. That was like peak. That is a quick turnaround indeed. Especially for filmmaking. They were very much like, we still don't know what we're doing. Yeah. Yeah. And so the other thing is, is like at that point, people were like jonesing for content because they were like, if we get this out, people will pay exorbitant amount of money for this film because everybody was looking for like something to fill the things because nobody was being able to make stuff. Yeah. Um, Yeah. I remember that. Yeah. So they made, so they made it, they filmed it then. And then I think it was out the following year in this early summer, I believe of 2021. And so nice. a quick, quick turnaround. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Love it. Both of my films actually were like the fastest turnaround. And then I realized that that's not a real thing. <laughs> no, it doesn't happen. Like every other feature I've been brought on, hired on to write, um, mostly like in more indie producers and like a director's idea and come and write this. I've taken years and then never happened, but it's just like they either like sometimes go super fast or they take a long time and or they never happen. And that's just the reality. But then they basically took it out. And I know because I kept bugging them about it. I'm like, where is it going to go? Where is it going to go? And then they sold it to Netflix. And then they said that their next choice would have been Lifetime because they had really good relationships. We wrote it in a nine act structure. So it was suited to be on something with commer- a space with commercials. So you okay. do like turns and then quicken like you do a normal act one and then things start to get a little like faster and faster and faster and so you have like more and more small turns that happen that's just kind of how how you write it like you still think about the third three acts but then you have these extra extra little turns in there you're like oh what's gonna happen next so wait until after the commercial wait until after the commercial but it still works as a th- like you still have to make it feel smooth so it could play like all in it in a row kind of thing Hey, Tucker, yeah. do you, did you know about the 9 act structure? I did not know about the 9 act structure. It's, it is a, yes, it is a movie of the week structure. And it, they, there are some older screenwriting books that cover it. His movie of the week kind of was in fashion and now out of fashion and now back in fashion. So you will find it. You will see that. So yeah, it'll, it, all de- it all depends. I should have known yeah. that somebody who worked at the writer's store would know about the 9 act structure. I was trying to buy every screenwriting book known to man. Uh-huh. Yes. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But yeah, the whole the whole difference is exactly what Heather is saying. Is It's like, like since you're writing for TV, you're planning for those commercial breaks. Because if you don't, have you ever watched something that didn't have a you know, proper break in commercial? It is awkward. Usually it's jarring. Hear, yeah. It's like, you're, oh, mm-hmm. it's yeah. watching something on podcasts. TV. Where like some of my mm. podcasts, they forget to break properly for commercial and they'll just be like, and you know what? Or that'd be too good of a lead in. They'd be like, and so I was doing, and then right, commercial. Yeah. yeah, it just, it will just. Have you ever slept on a Casper mattress and you're like, we were just talking about uh, football. Yeah. You know, like. <laughs> yeah, you need, you need those little bumpers to have people go, oh, okay, yeah. I'm ready for something else. Right. Um, or, ooh, I'm in suspense. I'll keep waiting for, yeah. you know, five minutes of ads. And I think what's interesting about writing, though, the films in that kind of, I'll say genre, because I think they're very specific, is you are learning how to write for a budget. So you, mm-hmm. you know, when you start, like the first questions you ask, how many characters, like what, how many primary, how many secondary or, or whatever characters, how many locations? Right. And then you're like really making sure that you can, you're writing to that. And then because we had COVID, we had to turn a lot of things into like, 
instead of a middle of the day cafe scene, it's now end of day, it's closed. Mm -hmm. And because we had to eliminate the amount of spaces that we had people, or when we had people, we put them outside. And so we created, and even one point, because they, had the sh they shifted it and they filmed in October, it was cold. Originally, we had scenes that were in this, like, he had a little caravan and they're outside and it was all, like, sweet and romantic. But then we're like, oh, well, it's too, co too cold. Yes, we're Canadian gonna October. Inside. <laughs> <laughs> we're going to go inside, like, a really high, like, lofty, like, and I was like, wow, this, this drifter's rich, but that's fine. <laughs> Do swung some deals yeah swung some good deals he swindled some people out of some money but i think the thing too to remember when you're writing those things and anything where you're coming as right for hire but especially these films like they don't want you to they want you to write as least amount of possible really so that they don't have to pay like anywhere that you can save money people save money right, right, this, is, right, you know, right. this doesn't matter how much if you're making millions or you're making under 10k it doesn't matter like you are they're going to try to restrict that in some capacity. So like I wrote a second draft, I had a potential for polish. They said, no, it's, this is fine. This is good. And then they made changes where they needed to. So they can kind of watch even before set or like, oh, we're going to have to meld these scenes because we don't want this extra scene because that's extra time. Mm -hmm. And then you'll watch it like, oh, that's not the ending that I wrote, but you don't really have a choice. That just is what it is. Right. But that happens right. a lot as a writer with many films that you will create in your life. Like it's not going to be exactly it unless you are the director as well, but they're always doing what's best for the production, usually in terms of like budget. And they're trying to make it work for story, but like, oh, we can't be in another location at the end or we right. can't have this thing. So like, how do you like truncate things? And so it's just being okay with those changes and understand you have to be okay with those changes. You don't have right. a choice. Yeah, well, I think, I, oh, oh, go ahead. Okay. No, 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 Rob, you go ahead. No, I was going to go to the next thing, but you had something. I'll save it. I'll save okay. it. Okay. All right. Well, I was going to ask, Heather, what can writers do, in your opinion, to stand out in the non-union market? You've obviously had some experience. And like you said, you went and, and emailed everybody that you had access to. <laughs> so I'm just wondering like, what you think writers should be doing in, in this market, which is probably at this point superior to the union market in terms of size like what can they do in order to stand out that's interesting i think you know really having okay having strong samples is always useful like when and being ready for that so for instance when this person said who has a sample like who like you have to have a sample like right. and so i i could send her something and then i also a friend of mine wanted me to write a rom-com which is a little outside of what i normally write because i normally write like thriller Twitter, family dramas, horror, like, but not family dramas, like, for kids, but I mean, like, <laughs> succession, succession, right? Like, not, right. I'm to, like, Haunting of Hill House, that's, like, my perfect family nice. drama, right? Okay. But I wrote a, a rom-com for her, so then it gave me a sample, so then again, when I had the opportunity to not, to, like, meet someone from, I met someone from Hallmark, I had a sample that I could send, and then it gives them, like, they're like, okay, great, now we can either send you something, or we can... Or you can pitch us. Right. And I think just having those strong samples and they don't have to be like my horror film was not something that they would ever make, but it showed that I could do a contained small cast, low budget, lower budget film that had tension. And they're like, great, you could write a thriller. So you don't have to be like, I'm writing this thriller to be a movie of the week. You can like, I'm writing this thriller because I want to make it, but it also can serve as a sample of my writing and that I understand this space in terms of like how to create tension, how to work with small casts, how to work with like limited locations, which I think are good for you anyways to have because those are things you could potentially make yourself too if you want to go down that route. I agree. I, agree. Yeah. And I think it's just like I recommended writers to write when because like once I became union, because I went I worked on the next thing I worked on was the Hardy Boys and then I had to go union. And so I couldn't, they asked me to write the next one and I, they couldn't do it. They didn't have the budgets for a union writer. So I recommended someone else. And so I think creating your community, making sure that you continue to like build those communities with other writers because writers get other writers jobs. I think any kind of opportunity, I, I joined the HRTS, which is the Hollywood Radio Television Society. There's a junior 
version as well, I found that I met some executives. I met a Hallmark executive there. And then I asked if I could have a meeting. And then I I said, can I come with ideas to you? Can I show you my sample? Like getting to that place of meetings is just because I met someone and I, all I asked was, can I have a meeting with you? Not read my stuff. It was like, can I please have a meeting? Uh-huh. If you want to hear, I want to hear about what you're working on. I'd right. love to hear what kind of stuff you were looking for. And then it becomes to them like a low commitment. It could be a 30 minute meeting and then they get to know who you are. And then you really have to sell yourself in that time that you understand this, that you have, like, I have a sample, I have some ideas that I'd love that to pitch to you. If you think that, you know, this sample is like, you know, after you read my sample, I'd love to pitch you some ideas. And that to me was a really, to me, that's always the way to, to go. Cause I think people f- get asked, can you read my script all the time? But really what you're saying is like, I really want to understand what your company's looking for. And I'd love to be able to see if I might be a good fit. Right. And again, it's not like, please read this thing. It's more like, Hey, let's like have a talk first. Like, let's have a first date. <laughs> yeah, so, read my script yeah. is definitely not first date material uh, yeah. in the networking way. Yeah. I think it's just you know, anywhere you can have opportunity to either be like anything that is kind of like a place where you can meet people. I'm always right. like, if you want to enter a competition, is it a competition where they will introduce you to people or like that you can go and meet other people or that you can be part of some sort of lab where you're getting exposure like mm-hmm. to me, those are the things that are the most important because I was a finalist at Austin, didn't matter. Like no one cared, but it did allow me to say something to people when I emailed them. Hey, I had something at Austin. They're like, cool. <laughs> but right. it was an excuse for me to email people. So, but to me, like going to Austin at that time, it was 2019. Man, I just met people. Mm-hmm. To me, the meeting of people and maintaining those relationships again will lead to more work and more potential for work. Agreed. Agreed. Well, Heather, we have two signature questions here at the uh, podcast. Are you uh, doing the first one or mine? Yeah, I'm doing the first one. Oh, yes. um, okay. yeah. And so he always does the first one. I, want I always do the first one. Why are we messing okay. with tradition? Okay. Mm. Oh. Um, <laughs> like, you know, so we have our two signature questions. And the first one is, Heather, do you like writing? Do you, like, do you actually like the process of writing? I actually do like the process of writing. Oh, wow. Yeah. I know. People, I don't know why people, I, so I'm like, why would I, I literally have, so I have ADHD. Mm-hmm. I literally, the way my brain works is that it's only interest-based like there's a number of things, but like interest-based, another one would be novelty, which is what also screenwriting does. But I literally love to work in those worlds and figure out the puzzle of writing. Like the puzzle of story to me is like, makes my brain just go. And if I didn't have interest in it, I would not be writing to this at this time. If I didn't have that interest, my brain literally would not allow it. (laughs) That's a, that's a fair answer. Okay. Question two for all the marbles. Do you outline or do you write by the seat of your pants? I heavily outline. I think <sighs> I think outline is where Ooh. the story starts. So, so I don't know if you've listened to this podcast before, but Rob and I are diametrically opposed on this. I'm losing ground <laughs> here on the year. Rob, I was starting to, it was even keel for a while, but I feel like out the last few guests. Like we're starting, uh, they're starting to lean in the the K Tuxer direction. She's, I don't like the direction. she's on Team K. She's yeah. on the good team. Yes. Oh, I, will, okay. I will say this though. Write however you like to write. It doesn't matter. But if you're writing in a professional sense, you will be told to outline. Right. You can write your specs however you want, but to me, I'm like, why not practice? Right? Like, why not practice the art? Because to me, writing an outline is the same as writing the script without the dialogue, really. That's what an outline is. So I'm I'm writing it, but I've also like figured some of the puzzle out. And it doesn't mean that I can't shift as I write the outline. And in writing the dialogue, things can shift too, but you are creating a blueprint that allows you to know this works. And then if yeah. you can want if you can one up it, awesome. But if you want to practice to be in this, be in the profession of what you will have to do when you are working in this space, you're gonna have to do beat sheets, you're gonna have to do outlines, and you're going to have to do drafts because that's how you get paid right and those are the steps that studios need and will ask for like writing in a television room you're going to do like you know the overall area story areas then you're going to do an outline and then you're going to do like multiple drafts and you 
that's just the name of the game and you get those are trigger points for payment yeah they're deliveries so deliverables sorry so get just practice now why not i think i've done like i've gone through like all of this the sort of phases of like you know this like i i think the most that i've that i like even tempted to sort of outline at this point is like a beat sheet of things and that's start rob good job you know what you stop it stop it (laughs) stop it get out of here (laughs) know what i'm doing but for me it's just like i i love the idea of you know, for me as a filmmaker, like writing the writing the script without like sort of a, without a safety net. And sometimes I'm just I'm, I'm writing towards an image or I'm writing towards a feeling. It just feels like like I'm having a more organic process, like I'm watching the movie in my head. And I try to keep keeping that sort of process going is what keeps me going in terms of my writing. The moment mm-hmm. I feel like I'm ahead of myself. Or like, or I'm like, I know like where the story is going. I feel like I'm boring, or I'm being boring, and I then I my whole struggle becomes to be like, how do I break out of this? How do I mm. like you know? And then I feel like I'm going to like weird places that I'm don't necessarily like. This isn't the movie anymore. So when mm. I was like, you know, I always want to be like that movie that's just like I don't know necessarily where this is going, but I love the tone and I'm digging this fucking movie. Like I always want to be there. But when, mm. like I said, like, I'm just like, all right, I know what, all right, like, go left, go left, do something else, dance for me, monkeys. You know, then, I'll, like, I start getting esoteric, and then it's just, like, this weird thing where I'm just like, I don't know why I wrote this. Why did I do this? <laughs> so, like, outlines for me, like, you know, they go into that, they sort of fall into that trap, because, you know, that, that, you know, and that's one of the reasons why I always write things by hand. Like, I have a script that I that I wrote by hand. And I'm going back and I, I'm getting a chance to, that feels like editing, you know, where you're in the editing process and you're able to like, you've got this movie, but that's not the movie anymore. Like mm. what you have is this raw material that I can now mold into something yes. else. And that's what I love about writing by hand. It gives me that raw material that mm. I can now shape into a draft that feels mm-hmm. that's going to be more cohesive than it would have been had I just bleh, vomited something out on the thing or like, you know, done like a, an outline or whatever like that. So it's yeah. like, here's the movie, and now I get to edit the movie. Like, I, I get yeah. like, what if you could like edit a movie that you didn't like and make it like, you know, the, do one of those Topher Grace edits, you know, where you do like one of those things. And like, that's what it feels like to me when I write stuff by hand. So I don't know. I don't, I can't, but, it's hard, but I, I understand yeah. what you're saying. Like, you know, when you're getting, you're, when you're getting paid and in the studio system, like, you know, and and even in the not, especially in the non-union market, where I get asked all the time, like, "All right, uh, let's start with a one pager, and then we'll start with a treatment, and then we'll start with an outline, and then we're going to the script." You know, it's like a yeah. bunch of things before you even get to that script, and that's fine to me if somebody's paying me for it. But like, you know, in terms of yeah, in terms of like if, the stuff where it's just your- me. Right. If you're your audience member, you you choose your chaos. Right. I'm just yeah. doing me, like yeah. at that point. But you yeah. know, I get it. Like I do love. I have come to love one pagers because you have to like it's you're trying to do this whole thing where you're being really really exciting, you know, and and do the whole movie in one page. Well, like a third of which is like this the the log line and the synopsis, like mm-hmm. you know, like the this is your log line and then it's like it's this meets this with the blah 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 and then the rest of the page like the last like seven tenths of the page is like now you have to squeeze this the whole story and it has to be exciting and it has to be enough so that somebody goes all right i want to pay this guy to write this thing now you know so like i sort of love the challenge of a one pager but otherwise i'm just but like you know even then it's kind of like i wonder what will happen you know, one of those things when one of my uh, like one pages goes to a treatment and then the treatment into like one of these things will be like, now nah, you've got to write this script. And I'm going to be like, am I bored? Am I bored? Because mostly people have been dealing with like my specs, which is, you know, it's just kind mm-hmm. of like at that point, it's just done. Yeah. Um, you're like, you know, people are asking me for a rewrite. And that's even that's exciting where folks are like, you'll do a spec. And then folks are like, we want this, this and this. And they'll give you like pages and notes. And you're like, Okay, all right. This, I'm not sure we're thinking about the same movie, but I got to make these changes. Got to make um, it anyway. Right. Make it work. <laughs> yep. 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 And then my thing is like, how? How? Like, how can well can I execute these notes 
whether like and so that the uh, the producers will come back and be like no notes he nailed it i want mm. like, like that's my goal it doesn't happen every time but it's happened yeah. a few times and yeah. i'm just like ah yeah and nailed now you it. Move for it yeah nailed it but I it's just that. exciting when you get notes from people, like, especially ones who have been in the, like, when you, that's why, like, when I got notes from the team at Mar Vista and the Shema, I was like, oh, my God, these are the best notes I've ever gotten because they do this like, every day. Like, their notes right. are so concise and so, like, well thought. I'm like, oh, you it's know specific. what we're making. Yeah. So yeah. specific. And I'm like, yeah, I can do that. I can change that. I can find that. I can figure this out. And I think, like, to me, it's interesting because, like, the thing that you said about I'm seeing the movie and I'm seeing the pictures that's what I'm doing when I'm putting my post-it notes on a wall. Okay. Like that's the part where I'm seeing that. And then when I do an outline, it's still like, I don't know all the answers. So they'll be like, they fight like, <laughs> and I don't know the answer yet. Yeah. So I'm still figuring out like, what is the soup in the box? Right? Like what is in the box? I don't know yet, but I know what the box is. So I'm like, I made a whole, I, I filled a room with boxes and now I get to open each one. And it's like, peeling layers of the onion like how am i getting to the center of this scene so to me that's what the that's what the process is like i'm not i don't necessarily have every answer or every turn in that scene thought out so every moment i'm like i go back in it's like i do an outline but then i'm going in deeper and deeper and deeper every time that i look at it so it is that editing process you're talking about it's just done in a way where i've already like put the boxes in place and then sometimes i have to shift the boxes around because they're not in the right order but that's then at least i know like and sometimes i can do that at an outline level so i'm not like bogged down with the love of the words that the characters are saying right. and that i can be like okay this isn't quite where i can feel it's not working here i can see that's that going, yeah because sometimes di dialogue yeah. like really good dialogue will paint you into a corner yeah like when yeah. you do like they always say have someone do like do readings of your work but if your actors are really good they can hide the flaws of the script sometimes yeah. because they just like oh they're so charismatic and aren't i the funniest person and you're like no they have good timing and if you didn't have the right actors doing it <laughs> so it's like so i have like my computer reads me my script and i can feel where there's problems like where it's problems because it's like a monotonous like scottish voice that i pick that's a scottish computer voice that talks nice. to me and then i can figure yeah. out yeah where it's flat yeah yeah i'm like oh that's flat like the flat lady made it even it's even flatter so. <laughs> <laughs> all right okay. let's move on to what are we watching consuming writing kate tuxer why don't you start us off and then you know yes. you can follow so i curse and praise our last interviewee jeremy lalandi because he mentioned in the podcast he was watching a live on netflix and then i put it on for the Misses, and she became addicted instantly and so did i i can't blame <laughs> yeah and so yeah. we binge watched an entire season of alive and then also picard which had a new season this week and then movie wise i watched clerks three got a little teary-eyed and yeah and then jumped into a classic and watched the conversation for the first time so mm. i feel a little well-rounded this week reality tv episodic classic yeah a little classic a tv some yeah. legacy tv yeah mm -hmm. oh. Checked all the boxes. Heather, how about you? What are you watching, consuming writing? So I am watching, I just started watching Gotham Nights. I have a list here because I was going to have it generally yesterday. That didn't happen. But watching School Spirits, which has been really fun. I don't know if you guys have seen that. Um, I have not. Ex Extraordinary that came out of the UK about a world with superpowers and someone who doesn't have one. And okay. so like, what that oh. means, if you don't have superpowers and everyone else does. Poker Face, we tried to watch Tetris last night, which I thought would be awesome. And we had to turn it off because I did not find it awesome. Oh, um, I'm really looking forward to that one. I mean, maybe it's going to be awesome for everybody. I was like, I don't know. I think I watched, I think it was in high score, the story. I can't remember if it was high score or something else where I saw the story of the person who created Tetris. And it was so awesome. And this is about a guy who bought the rights to <laughs> Tetris and then how he's getting the rights. And I was like, cool. But I love the story of the guy who literally was risking his life to make Tetris. Like to yeah, me, right. that was the story that I loved. So sorry, everyone who loves Tetris. It's not, it's all me and it's not you. She just pulled out her Canadian story. I loved it. Oh, no. <laughs> it sneaks out. It sneaks out. Yeah. So I guess those are some of the things I've been watching. Ted Lasso, I started, I watched that with my husband. We're not in the same city right now. So we watch it over Zoom. Oh, that's, yeah. that's very cute. Yeah. So um, we will be watching tonight to catch up. Ted Lasso watch party. Yeah. That's, yeah. Uh, that's, that's a love awesome. language. Yeah. yeah. 
What about uh, you, Rob? Well, I did some writing this week, but not enough. I am in the middle of two of the hardest screenplays that I've ever written. One, because it's very personal. The other one, because it has to be made for $1,000. Didn't get to see John Wick because I... $200 later, I have a new tire and couldn't go to the movies. So, <laughs> yeah. So, <laughs> I'm so sorry, Rob. But it I have so much umbrage around that. We will be here all day. I can't even start it on. Okay. Anyway, so I started rewatching Doctor Who for comfort. And now I'm just now going through like the Russell T. Davies years. Those are I some do. good years. There Which are. Doctor? They're so good. Which They're Doctor so are you on? Tenant. Right I'm still on Eccleston. Um, okay, uh, yeah, he starts out with Eccleston. Yeah, yeah. I'm. I'm I, I would start with ten because David Tennant is my favorite. But I, I, I do love the lead up to David Tennant. David Tennant is everything. Almost every episode that he's in is just marvelous. Even the ones written by Chitnall and. Mm, my, I, some of my favorite episodes come out of the David Tennant, like Blink yeah. or something like Blink. that. Where yeah. you're yes, like, oh. Blink is so good. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, no, for me, you know, like David Tennant is amazing from the first, from the Christmas invasion, man. Just comes in, the, 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 uh, throwing the Satsuma. I love it. I love it. This new hand's a fighting hand. Anyway, yeah, I'm doing that. Yeah. Cause sometimes you just need soul comfort food, and, and Doctor Who is mine. It's it's I've been watching it since I was five years old. I just love oh, it. Little Rob was watching really. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I love it. Nice. Our resource this week, Script Notes is sort of the de facto de facto screenwriting podcast, although we were rated higher than them recently. So I'm, I'm you know, maybe things I don't know if it was that or we were like alphabetically listed higher. You know what, Kate Tuxford? I'm gonna I I see <laughs> the world the way I see the world. <laughs> okay. 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 All right. Anyway, they have re-released episode 193, which mm -hmm. is kind of the definitive guide for how writing credits, credits work in the industry under union contracts. So mm -hmm. um, I would feel free to dive into that. I guarantee you that you'll learn something because I did. And for, you know, you'll probably learn a lot for when those, those days when, like Heather, you are now under WGA contract and writing things for the union and being all super awesome. That, that seems like something that may be worthwhile. And it is available for free, which we love on the show. We love free yes. stuff. Free is the best. And that is Screenwriting from the Trenches, which can currently be found on Amazon, Anchor, Apple, Google, iHeartRadio, and Spotify podcasts, as well as KevinLMartin.com. Our screenwriting Twitter drama theme song was written by Zach Morrison and used with his permission. And hey, we'd appreciate it if you dropped us a like or rated us five stars on whatever platform that you patronize because... Algorithms... For questions for us that we can and will answer on the show, our email is, well, my email is rob at bmofo.net. You can also find us on Twitter. I'm at BespectacleMofo. I'm at K underscore Tux. And Heather, you are what on Twitter? At Heather A. Taylor. And Zach is at, Morris, uh, at Zach Morrison 18. And these things, as well as my YouTube channel series, where the Cinema Challenge series, where we are showing you how to make the aforementioned really challenging, hard-to-write movie for $1,000, has been launched this week. Our episode was on... What was our episode on? We were... It was... Last week was... Line producing. Casting and locations. Casting and locations. No, it was... Mm -hmm. No, it was uh, scheduling... And, and locations. Mm. Scheduling, Ooh, scheduling and locations. Location. Yeah. Yes. I didn't think I was going to have as much fun writing that episode as I did. But it was, it's it's full of factual information. And all of that is linked in the show notes. Thanks so much for listening. We hope that you will continue to do so. Now, stop procrastinating. Those pages aren't going to write themselves. Heather, thank you for coming on the show. Kate Tuxford, we you, hit your hard deadline just at the right moment. Yes, I do have to bounce, but Heather, it was so nice to meet you. It was so nice to meet you too. Rob, have a wonderful fine. day. Yeah. <laughs>